Support for the Game Podcast is brought to you by StarCityGames.com, the world's largest independent retailer for Magic the Gathering singles and supplies and home for the best strategy content on the web. If you would like to support the Game Podcast, feel free to check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash the G-A-M podcast. Welcome to episode 107 of the Game Podcast. I'm Jerry Thompson. Here with me, as always, is Brian, the time stream navigator, Gottlieb. And is that because you want to go back in time and change your deck choice for GP Portland? Or <laughs> No, absolutely not. My deck was great in GP Portland. Uh, my record wasn't, but my deck was great, which I know is sometimes a little bit difficult to wrap your head around. But I was very pleased with Amulet. I think it was a great choice. I think it's a great deck. You know, Liam from our Discord, the Game Podcast Discord, did quite well with a very, very similar list. He got a, a nice finish for himself, uh, X and 3 finish. So no complaints whatsoever about Amulet. I'm referencing the fact that it feels like it's been like 10 years since I last spoke to you. I, I don't know why it feels that way this week. I think so much has happened over the past week that it just feels like an eon since we last sat down to do an episode. It's only been seven days. It's not like we took any time off whatsoever, but it feels like the entire magic world has changed in those seven days somehow. Yeah. And, and I mean, we're chatting in the meantime, you know, like talking every other day or whatever, but right. I agree with you. A lot has happened. Uh, we got some cool stuff happening with uh, Star City Games. We are doing effectively like a, a commentary show per month starting yeah. in 2019, which is pretty rad. Yeah, people are stoked for this, man. Uh, like all I heard in Portland was just people coming up and not only, you know, appreciating the cast, but also just being like, man, I can't wait to see you guys do coverage. And I am just as excited as they are. This is going to be a lot of fun. Yeah, we better not blow it. Uh, yeah, we'll be okay. We We have enough experience now in this arena and like, Look, I feel like you could put the two of us in a room to talk about anything, and it might take a few tries, and we might stumble a little bit here or there, but eventually we're going to find our form and be able to work our way through it. So, yeah, we'll we'll get there. Just don't put all of the the impetus on like the first show, you know. Like, give us some time, but we'll be good. Nah, first show, we're going to crush it. I'm calling it okay. Yeah, fair. <laughs> uh, also, we we each have uh, a token coming out, which is pretty cool. Yeah, I, I think yours came out great. It is a dead ringer for you, for sure. And I was also quite pleased with mine. Uh, my wife is also over the moon to finally have a squirrel token. Yes. Uh, I'm sure we'll have them all over the house. It's going to be great. Absolutely. And then there were some OP changes that happened. And a lot of people have been asking me about this. Uh, I mean, if if you, you hadn't seen the announcement, go Google it or something. It's kind of similar to announcing more announcements because we don't have all the information and that's kind of where I'm at right now where a lot of people are asking me what I think and it's just impossible to definitively say whether or not these changes are good or bad because we don't know everything that's going to happen. It's like I have some concerns for people who are silver and gold level pros like are are their benefits still going to exist like these things that they fought so hard for over the last uh, 12 months and what's going to happen with Asia Pacific and Latin America and stuff like that. I don't know. So we, we kind of just have to wait and see. Yeah. My first take was like unabashed excitement. 
Just because, I mean, this setup makes it possible that some number of people are going to be able to make a very good living off of Magic the Gathering, which I think is critical because right now, even the very best rely so much on other things for their income. You know, content production like we're doing now uh, is a key for any Magic player's livelihood. And here seems to be a path just from playing Magic to uh, both financial security as well as more notoriety, which is just as important. So I was super excited about that. But as time went on and I had some time to sit with everything in the announcement, there's just so much missing. And I understand the people who are nervous about what they've devoted their lives to, the, the gold pros, uh, you know, the people who are lower platinums and not falling in that top 32 range. They just don't know what the future is going to look like. And that's scary. And I respect that and I get it. So I hope we get information soon. I thought we were done with announcements about announcements I guess not. I guess we had one more in the bank here. I'm still optimistic. I still like the general tone of what I'm hearing, but I I agree. There has to be more information before I can give a full weigh-in on what's been changed. It is very clear that they are trying to do good. Yes. I mean, obviously, there is a lot going on with Arena and them promoting the hell out of it, and the numbers, honestly, for Twitch just being really good. Mm -hmm. And... I, I think that it is certainly to their benefit to roll with that and lean into it, but it also seems like they are trying to take care of people and everything, and I think that's great. So uh, hopefully the execution is as good as you know what their their intent is, I guess. Yeah, I, it, you're right. It shows a willingness to take care of a set of players. It's just need to know what's happening to the other set of players, the people outside of that range. Like you said, it's motivated by a desire to improve things. That much is clear. This is not a cost-saving measure. This is not uh, some misdirection designed to throw us off the scent and just quell the complaints. This is an effort to improve the system. And it's, it's very clear just from its kind of formative stages that that's what we're dealing with here. And I hope it delivers. Yeah. And last year was a transition year and it was kind of awkward. And now that Arena is out and basically crushing it, this is also just going to be another transition year. So kind of similar to us doing commentary, maybe don't put all of the emphasis on what it actually looks like in the first year, because they are willing to listen to feedback and like actively change things. So uh, year two maybe might be where you get to take a, a good hard look at it and be like, well, you know, this is working or it isn't working. Fingers crossed. Absolutely. So, a lot of events are wrapping up. We're rolling into the holidays. There's a lot of downtime. We could talk about modern and everything. There is one last RPTQ left, but we decided to do sort of a question episode where we gave people strict guidelines for questions to ask us. And we got such good questions that we're actually just going to be splitting this into two episodes, it looks like. And a lot of the questions kind of fell under similar buckets and the guidelines we gave the people in our discord were basically like, what is the the thing in magic that you are struggling with the most? Right. And the responses were awesome. Like seriously, just top notch stuff. Uh, and, and that's the problem we were facing. We were basically like, I want to answer all these uh, because they were compelling and interesting to talk about. So we did decide to break it into two parts. Going to try and do something special for part two. We're, we're working on it right now. But today we're going to do part one of our discussion and get through some really interesting stuff here. Some interesting struggles our listeners are having right now. Yeah, absolutely. And we mostly cover kind of like the day to day, 
or week to week rather, and the metagame shifting and new technology and stuff like that. And occasionally we just kind of like gloss over the big picture. And this is the stuff that actually matters, I think. Right. Stuff that pays dividends forever. You know, we can tell you the best version of Golgari to play on a week to week basis. Uh, that'll last you exactly one week. And then things will change, as we well know here on the game podcast. Hopefully you can take something away from this episode that can last you forever and ever. Uh, if not this one, certainly the next one. But right. I, I hope it's both. Right. So the first question is from Jamie Moffat, and she talks about tips for improving recognition or cognizance of the entire board state. It feels like sometimes I make a play or decision. I miss things that my opponent has either in their graveyard or sometimes even blatantly on board. And I like this question a lot. Uh, I think that it frames kind of this entire episode. So it's sort of a big deal where a lot of players seem to have this problem where they look at a lot of things individually or get tunnel visioned. And uh, to combat this, I think the best way to go about it is to basically change how you're going about things, how you're looking at the game and the game state in general. A lot of people kind of play magic on a turn to turn basis where uh, from my experience, it's kind of like if your friend just tagged you into their game on Magic Online or something. It's like, okay, well, now you have to just survey all the the game state stuff, like, you know, cards in their hand, what's in their graveyard, what's going on on the battlefield, all that sort of stuff, rather than treating the game as like this continuous story that is constantly updating. Yeah, and the the process you're describing is one of my big objections with team tournaments. You know, you get tagged in all the time and someone asks you to weigh in. And for me, my my setup just isn't built to work that way. I need to have a running tally of what's going on in the game, what's important in the game, and how that's evolving over time. The, the tag-in thing just doesn't work for me because I'm constantly from turn one updating my perceptions of what's important about the game. And it's kind of something that if I don't have the context of the previous turns, it doesn't really matter what's currently on the board and and, and what's there because there's so much being glossed over and missed in just the, the visual representation of the game state because there's so many things that happened previously. Right. So w- one of the things that I really try and do in order to uh, stay engaged with the board state is use any downtime to really check my perceptions of the game state. And this is something like one of the big transitions between a beginning player and, you know, someone a little bit lower on the totem pole to your typical PPTQ, RPTQ grinder type player. And I really do think that's where this shift is made. But the beginner player, they play on their turn. The RPTQ player is just playing the game all the time. And what I mean by that is like they're using every single second they are engaged in the game to be constantly updating their mental state and and to be constantly updating what's important. Whereas I feel like the most novice player is basically checking out in their opponent's turn. They're not even participating. And you see it sometimes there's like casual conversation they're doing or they're looking at the game next to them. Um, I see it a lot when I go to like more casual tournaments like Thursday Night Magic for instance, there's just less of that constant engagement. And you really have to make sure you are dialed into your game 100% of the time. There is no time off in a magic game. You are always participating in the game. There's there's always things to be thinking of. I mean, if a lot of these questions deal with, you know, how how do I, I don't know, like how how do I keep 
like being keyed in on what's going on in the game and like what's my role and all this stuff. It's just, well, pay attention. You know, I mean, I understand getting bored. That certainly happens to me. I mean, if my opponent is thinking on their turn for a minute or two at like the 30 second mark, I'm, I'm kind of checked out, even though I know it's a bad habit. It's bad practice for sure. But starting from turn one, like turn zero, it's like you're, you're mulliganing and you're looking at this opening hand. It's just like, okay, well, like I'm, I'm playing, you know, let's say I'm playing Golgari or whatever. It's like, I don't have a lot of early pressure, but I have a bunch of removal. This hand would likely be better on the draw than on the play. Am I going to be able to like make my land drops? What happens if my opponent's like playing a control deck? Am I going to be able to pressure them enough? Like you need to be thinking about these things from the get. But I think a lot of people just open up and they're just like, okay, lands and spells, keep that. Okay, I'll just, you know, play a land, see what they do. And it's it's just kind of whatever. But it is really like this overarching story or narrative that happens throughout the entirety of the game. And uh, I, I think limited might actually be a thing that a lot of people could play a little bit more to get a handle on that sort of thing. Because standard mm. now, and even some modern matchups, there's a lot of creature combat and stuff like that. And I think limited helps you a lot with figuring out your role. Like, are are you the aggressor? Your opponent has made certain plays, like whether it's just attacks or not blocking or whatever. Like, why why are they making these decisions, right? Like, what does that indicate? And what you said about the team stuff really makes a lot of sense to me. And I kind of feel the same way where it's like, you know, someone's just like, hey, should I kill this or save it? And it's just like, I I really don't know. I mean, I could give you an answer, but I just think that's doing you a disservice, right? Like every choice that your opponent makes is some amount of information that is being given to you. Yeah, I, I want to return to your point about limited. I think limited is also good practice as far as you know this issue goes because it forces you to constantly update your assumptions you're not able to rest on your laurels and say okay well it's turn three in the golgari matchup and my opponent should play jade light ranger here like there's none of that autopilot stuff it's a constant struggle to update you know what am i looking for what could they possibly have what is every possible card in the format that they could cast right now with their mana because everything's on the table. They could absolutely have the weird ball, one of that nobody else would play. And do I have to play around it? You know, do I have to even consider it here? I think limited does a great job of amping up that portion of your game. I'd also say if you have the boredom problem where you're like, you, you know, you check out of games, give yourself some in-game busy work, like check a graveyard, you know, read a card. If you're, if you're in a down period and you just want to absolutely be sure you know what Nissa's abilities do or something like that. There's a bunch of things you can do to keep yourself plugged into the game all the time. You know, I, I had a friend who I talked to after GP New Jersey, very good magic player. I asked them how their day one went and they were just like, yeah, I lost. I didn't know Vivian Reed could destroy enchantments. It's like, well, <laughs> you know, you probably saw a Vivian Reed in play throughout the day. You could have picked it up, read it at any point in time. So anytime you see a wordy card on the battlefield, you know, keep yourself engaged, read that card, uh, you know, update your assumptions about what's going on in the game and all that stuff will do a lot more to keep you plugged into the current board state. Absolutely. Uh, do we have any more to talk about this question specifically or should we move on? Let's move on. I think a lot of the things we're going to talk about today will in some ways circle back to this point. A lot of this is about being able to just, uh, you know, 
process a lot of information, which is the core of magic, essentially. It's being able to internalize all these things and and make uh, decisions based on your assumptions. And it's going to keep coming up as we move through these. Right. And it, I know it's not easy. I mean, right. there's... There's always things like Jamie points out, like, you know, things, things in the graveyard, things that are on board, but it's like, those are things that you, you can't just forget about, you know, it has to be like, okay, they have a direct current in their graveyard that is there. That has to always be something that you're thinking about. Right. Right. And you can use cheats and I don't mean actual cheats, but I mean, you can have a a system to, if you're constantly failing things like direct current. Write it down, write it right under your life total, something that you check on a regular basis. Uh, If you have to rip off a sheet of paper and put it right next to your library. So every time you draw your card, you see a little note that says direct current in the graveyard, do it, whatever it takes that you're building these, these ways of memorization. I think people are often surprised when I thought these, I generally don't write down cards anymore. I did for the longest time, but I just remember them now. And it, it comes from like, a lot of practice. And obviously there's some exceptions. If a hand has a particularly strange texture, I might write it down. But a lot of thoughts is I'm very comfortable just being like, okay, I know it's there. Yep. But I built that by years and years of writing down thoughts, these hands and like eventually shortcutting that system to an even shorter system. So there's nothing wrong with taking baby steps to start building these mental processes. Agreed. Uh, next question is from Stunlock for the win. I struggle with defining heuristics for play patterns when learning a new constructed deck with regards to sequencing because sample size is too small to determine which line gives me better percentage point equity. E.g., should I play Selfless Spirit or Thalia first against Jund? Does play draw change it? And for questions like this, it's kind of interesting because it kind of creates the, the notion that everything in magic is the same. It's like, oh, well, if I'm playing against Jund, I should always play this card first, or I should always play this other card first. But realistically, everything is different. I mean, I think if they if they play a Raging Ravine Tapped versus like a Blackleaf Cliffs, or if right. they Inquisition you or whatever, it's like there there's so much that can happen in the first few turns of the game that it should alter what your decisions are. So I think... This and also kind of pulling back to the last question, just familiarity with the formats and the decks will help you a lot with this, where uh, in in Jamie's case, where it's like, you know, there's a thing in the graveyard that I forgot about, or there's a thing on the battlefield that I forgot about. Is there a way to know what your deck is trying to do, what your opponent's deck is trying to do, and just kind of like figure out their win conditions and how they best create like the, the most positive board state or most advantageous board state against you. You know, like are, are there play patterns that you need to be on the lookout for and determining which two drop you should play first against Jund kind of plays into that a little bit where maybe if you're on the play or if you're on the draw, maybe you want to play Thalia to, to brick their Liliana. Maybe if you're on the play, it, doesn't really matter all that much because they're just going to play like a, a two drop creature or something like you have to like actually get in the reps to figure out uh, how your play impacts what is happening with their deck. I didn't think this would become a recurring theme throughout this episode for me, but I'm going to shout out limited play again. Yeah, I, I think there's an assumption that because you're playing a constructed matchup, there's like this level of 
rehearsal that kind of plays into everything. Like there, there is some static line that you can take that's going to be correct 100% of the time, but that's just not true. Um, and, and limited again, does a great job of changing this. It's like, should you play your four drop on turn four? Well, Probably, but there's also some situations where maybe your three drop is a better choice. Maybe you should play two, two, two drops. It's all about context and it changes on a game to game basis. If, if you're one of the types of people who likes to have a heuristic and then adapt from that heuristic, so you, you want to have a default mode, then I like that approach a little bit better than just saying like, this is correct. This is wrong. And if you leave yourself some room for adaptability, I, th- I think that's a much better way of going about things. Uh, and I would say if that's what you're attempting to do, well, this is what playtesting is for. And essentially in playtesting, this is where you want to build a theorem. And your theorem may be, I should always play Thalia turn two on the play. I should always play uh, Selfless Spirit turn two on the draw, whatever. The actual theorem doesn't matter. But at that point, you have freedom to test it out. This is why we're doing playtesting games. This is what the types of things we want to learn. So go about your game, make those plays, and go back and reflect. Was I punished for making that play? In what fashion does the game play out if I did the opposite? Are there points where you know my game plan would have been significantly advantaged by doing the thing that I didn't assume was correct? And if you're always checking on these kind of fail states for your theorems, then you're more apt to one, build an adaptability to have better theorems and have better starting points to move from. Uh, so this goes back to like effective playtesting and using playtesting for a purpose. This is why you want to go into the spirits versus John matchup in playtesting with questions you want to answer and not just, Oh, grinding the spirits versus John matchup. I'm sure I'll learn something from this. No, you won't learn anything unless you know the questions you're asking. Yeah, exactly. I do think there are some decks that are kind of structured like this, where you have a very limited amount of different plays that you can make each turn. Like, mm-hmm. I think Red, the Red Green Valakit deck in Modern is a pretty good example of like, yeah, this deck wants to play like Ramp Spell, Ramp Spell, Primeval Titan, or Escape Shift, you know? And I think that's fine to play those decks, but for the most part, Magic is not like that. And it is so not like that to the point where whenever I play one of these decks that has like structured play patterns that I just feel like super weird, you know, because it doesn't feel like I'm playing magic anymore. But I think that the default should be treating magic like it is completely freeform because it is. And if you play more limited, you would probably start thinking about it that way. But I think a lot of people look at constructed decks where it's like, all right, Golgari plays, you know, Wild Growth Walker on two, Jade Light Ranger on three, Ravenous mm-hmm. Chupacabra on four. And it's like the games don't play out like that all the time. Even with the linears you're talking about, too, I think they change a lot as well. Oh, yeah. On a game-to-game basis. I mean, some, sometimes you have to take a turn off from ramping to actually, like, interact with them in Lightning Bolt or Creature, you know? Like, sometimes you just don't have a Primeval Titan on six. Or sometimes your game plan, because you don't have a big finisher, is just to, like, manually kill them with Valakut, you know? like right. Even in these structured decks, there are these kind of like corner case scenarios that pop up probably a lot more frequently than you would think. And if you are trying to just say like, oh, my spirits deck curves out like this every single game and that's what I do, I think you're doing yourself a disservice. I agree. Next question is from Nightmare411. They ask about sideboarding. I often know what to bring in, but it's hard to determine, especially if a newer deck what to take out if there aren't any obvious dead cards. And 
this is kind of in line with playtesting and figuring out what cards perform well and what cards perform poorly. And it's also just like the overarching story thing where, you know, you are playing this matchup. Is their deck pretty normal? Do you have any reason to deviate from what uh, you might normally do against like a traditional Golgari deck? Or do they have any weird stuff? You know, I, I think just strictly looking for dead cards is the easiest way to go about it where I'm playing against control. Therefore I take out all, all my removal spells, but realistically there aren't a lot of matchups, especially in standard where there are just a bunch of dead cards because, you know, a lot of decks have X amount of creatures and most of your cards at least interact with your opponent to some degree. So uh, yeah, it all, it all goes back to play testing and, you know, figuring out, how your deck works, how their deck works, how your decks interact, and everything in between. Yeah, the de- the dead cards thing is a huge trigger for me. It really sets off alarm bells because it signifies to me that this person may be looking for some by-the-numbers type sideboarding. And that's always a dangerous way to go about things because, like you said, I think the concept of dead cards is fairly outmoded at this point. Like, okay, side out your removal versus control. Here's my Legion War Boss. Good game. Um, so there's that issue. But there's also the fact that just thinking about things in terms of dead cards means you're not building a new deck. And that is the key to effective sideboarding. You are moving your deck to a new configuration of cards, which is optimized for the matchup. And that is different from taking these cards that I think are good cards from my sideboarding, and putting them in my deck and taking these cards that I think are bad cards and taking them out of my deck. The concept is very different. You're looking to still create a cohesive game plan from the 60 cards you're going to be presenting here. And that doesn't just mean I upgraded these three slots. It means now my game plan looks like this. This is what I'm attempting to do. And I think using the terminology dead cards, I'm harping on it a little bit. It could be that this person is acutely aware of this, but I often find that when people are kind of phrasing their sideboarding this way, they're missing the bigger picture of sideboarding. And this is one of the things I think back when I was honestly quite bad at magic and just having like some modicum of success, you know, doing well at Grand Prix and getting to play occasional pro tours. I I was horrible at a lot of things, but one one of the things I always understood was this principle of sideboarding and just how important sideboarding was and how key it was that I had a game plan in post-board matches. And I I learned this a lot in like Shards of Alara Jund Mirrors. That's where I really cut my teeth on formulating some good game plans and doing things that people didn't necessarily expect because I was playing the matchup in a certain fashion. A lot of this often had to do with like lightning bolts or always pumping my putrid leech no matter what you know those type of play patterns serve me very well because i was doing broader game planning than just this card is bad this card is good again limited will teach you a lot here especially sealed deck where you actually have a lot of options where Mm -hmm. your opponent has some sort of you know boros aggro deck and Based on the cards they play, you can infer a lot about their deck, whereas if they're playing a lot of scrappy combat tricks, you know that they probably don't have a whole lot of top end, and you can infer that there are cards like Cosmotronic Wave that are far more likely to be in their deck than not, because that is your opponent's game plan. And you might be playing like Selesnia, where it's like, you you can't beat a wave, your deck's a little slow, a little clunky, like, yeah, if you get to the late game, you're going to win, but I think most decks with any amount of power level would probably win in the late game against such a Boros deck. And that's when you actually have to go back to the drawing board and be like, okay, what sort of deck can I concoct that would actually be good against them? And you start 
looking at, I mean, I guess this isn't an, a GRN card, but like Healing Grace is a card that I really love against hyper-aggressive strategies where it's just a card like no one really respects, but like it, it has a purpose. It is there for a reason and it is specifically good against that, like that kind of archetype, you know, like you have to basically like rebuild your deck from the top down a lot of the times with the kind of constraints that you're given within your sealed pool. And I think that I was always quite good at that. I frequently made more sideboarding changes than my opponents did in sealed GPs. And I think people are a lot better at it now. Like you see people swapping decks and stuff like that, but it it will really teach you a lot as far as not just, you know, you have your, your 23 cards and then you side out a crappy card for a plummet against their flyer or whatever. Like you, you have to actively be thinking about like how their deck is going to win, how your deck is trying to win and what, whether or not you actually have the tools to switch that paradigm at all. Man, I didn't know we were coming here to do an, an episode of limited resources this week, but listen, we're, listen, we're it is limited very hard. It's, it's very helpful for, I, I for, totally agree. I think a lot of people are just like, okay, I'm playing Golgari, you're playing Is It. These are how our decks work. This is how we can expect to curve out. And then you just play games of it. I think that that is how a lot of quote unquote playtesting does actually occur. And I think that in like today's magic format, kind of like in the era of the SCG tour and everything, I think that people are just pushed into constructed a lot more than limited and they kind of just like skip over learning those fundamentals. And I think that playing limited is actually kind of a cheat sheet to it. Whereas you, you can learn that stuff from playing constructed, but like you don't really figure that out, I guess like there's, there's no one necessarily telling you that you can build like a transformational sideboard or uh, figure out like creative ways how to sideboard in certain matchups. It's basically just like, oh, this is my deck. This is this is what it does, and I just you know cut bad cards for good ones, right? And that's it. Right, and and we're from the same era, so I'm sure you remember the time of like seeing someone do well at a constructed GP and being like, oh, I don't really know that person, and then your friends are like, nope, limited sicko, you know, has insane limited fundamentals, you never want to play against them in a game of limited. It feels like that person has like kind of gone away, but a lot of the best players I knew back in the day were just like hardcore limited grinders, completely cut their teeth on that format, uh, and that's kind of how they rose to the top of the magic world, for sure. Yeah, and one of the things you see a lot from limited players... Uh, like people who play primarily limited is just how kind of tight aggressive they are. Like they are very keen on racing situations and how to break through board stalls and just like formulating a game plan. And just the amount of stuff that they see as far as what's going on on the battlefield compared to just someone who plays standard and basically just like wants to goldfish their deck uh, is, is just huge. It's just night and day. Yeah. Uh, next question is from Henry, and this is kind of a thing that we already talked about, but uh, Henry says, one struggle I have had is getting to level four. Uh, the levels described by the limited resources system is uh, one, random casting of spells, two, playing with mana efficiency, three, having a plan, and four, playing around your opponent's plan. For me, I play with a plan really well. I found that in PPTQs, I can make top eight extremely consistently because I can play with a plan and do that well. However, when I get to the top eight and start running into players that are often on the PT or just great magic players in general, 
Playing with a plan isn't enough to get me there. How do you suggest working on playing against your opponent's plan? This is a good question. What I, level I, are you on? What do you think? I, I mean, I, <laughs> I assume I am on four. I, I hope I'm on four after 20 plus years. If not, I should go do something else. It all circles back to one though, you know? Right, right. Um, <laughs> I, I think that a lot of playing around your opponent's plan is kind of the word I want to use is empathy, but that's not quite what I'm looking for. It's just being able to put yourself in your opponent's shoes and getting to the root of their motivation for all of their actions. Like, why did they do this thing? What inspired them to play in this way? Like, oh, I see they led with this three drop, but in the next turn, they played this other three drop. How come they started on that three drop as opposed to this one? All of these things you can extrapolate information from and learn to put yourself in their shoes and kind of bridge that gap and understand why they're taking the actions they are taking. Now, I think that seeing this as the golden ticket might be a little bit of a red herring. I I do think this is often very important in very specific spots, and it is kind of where the line of greatness is drawn, but a a lot can be gained by focusing more on levels one, two, and three. And then level four comes in in some very key spots where you can really make the difference between your average player and a truly top-notch player. So maybe part of the struggle you're having here is trying to do that too much. Maybe you're trying to find too many ways to play around your opponent's plan, and therefore you're hurting your own ability to institute your plan. So maybe you have to try and be a little bit more selective with the spots where you're playing around your opponent's plan, at least to the extent that like, if you've ever seen someone who's playing a really established, like well-known player for the first time, and you know this person well and you know their play style, you can almost see them talk themselves out of the correct play in a bunch of instances. And I think top players get a lot of win equity this way because their opponents are constantly making these mistakes because, oh, this person is representing a counterspell. Obviously, they have it. They wouldn't have played unless they did. But like top players know this and can use this against you. So it's this constant back and forth and... I'm I'm just wary that you can take this this approach too far and really use it to do harm to your game as much as it could help it. Yeah, step one of level four is trying to figure out what their plan actually is, right? Mm-hmm. So again, let's let's go back to limited. When your opponent attacks a two-two into a three-three, that tells you something. That's not something that necessarily comes up a lot in constructed because you know people aren't playing a lot of combat tricks or whatever, but. There are, again, like th- everything that your opponent does tells you something. Are they willing to trade in combat? Are they offering you trades? Are they trying to race? Are they playing defensive? Like, what does all of this stuff mean? And then how can you best try and play around that stuff? And sometimes the answer is you just can't, you know? It, I, I've played games of limited specifically where my opponent is playing incredibly defensive to the point where it's like, I know that they have like some six or seven mana bomb, right? And. It's not like I have a removal spell to deal with it. It's just like I have to just keep playing the game, try and actually get them dead before they play it and hope that that's good enough. And, you know, maybe it works, maybe it doesn't. But I've identified their plan, right? But that doesn't necessarily mean that I have the tools to actually interact with it. And I think people might just take that step a little too far where, all right, I figured out my opponent's plan. Now I have to interact with it when that's not even necessarily true. Right. And sometimes the best interaction is just aggression, right? And in oh, yeah. those spots, it's like, oh, well, I better end this game very quickly. I think this is an important thing to consider, but try not to overthink it is my advice. Yeah. 
Uh, I mean, th- that's kind of why we talk about being proactive as just being a strictly superior baseline strategy than just trying to be reactive. You know, mm. the threats now are so diverse that you can't necessarily have an answer for everything. So if you kill your opponent before they draw their card or play their card, then that's one way of making sure that that card never has any real effect on the game, right? Yep. Next question is from Monkey Manu. Uh, how to change... This this is worded weird, sorry. Uh, how to change or do something about being able to seemingly make correct plays when watching someone else play, but being clueless when the cards are physically in your hand sitting there. So we see people being like backseat magicians a lot of the time where it's like, oh, why didn't this person do this? It was so obvious, blah, blah, blah. And this happens just a lot of the time, right? Where someone who is not actually in the game gets to kind of like see everything and they don't necessarily feel like pressure or anxiety or anything like that. Or maybe they pick up on something that the person is missing and it is just so much harder to actually be trying to play the game in these sort of high pressure situations. I think everyone who is standing watching a game of magic is likely a better magic player than when they are sitting playing a game of magic. (laughs) Yeah, that's a funny way to look at it. I I think there's something to be said for a narrower range of focus. Like as much as the actual physical maintenance of a magic game may not be a daunting mental task, it is doing something like there, there's some part of you that is devoted to handling these operations and, you know, surveying your cards in hand. And uh, I, I mean, I, I think it is easier to play a game of magic where you're not actually playing it to just find the best decision in one spot because you're not worrying about all those other spots. You're thinking about the future and you're thinking about like this critical junction and not worrying about everything that led up to it. And you've, you've had more time to kind of focus on the main point that you're fixated on the correct play that you're finding that someone is missing. Like you said, I think this is common as far as an answer to it. This feels like a practice thing. Like I, I, th- I think it's just more experience, more games, and then you can start bringing some of that backseat magicianing into your own games. From my experience, it's due to comfort for me. It's like, you know, what, what are the conditions surrounding me uh, that allow me to actually be in kind of like a flow state and be able to see everything that's Mm. going on in the game and make sure I don't miss anything. So it's like, you know, if, if I'm nice and toasty warm and I have enough space and comfortable in general, you know, like maybe my opponent is a nice person instead of a mean person, like that could help too. Right. Uh, Maybe there's not a lot of noise around me. Maybe I'm just playing online versus playing in real life. Uh, Maybe I'm not playing a complicated deck. Maybe Uh, I'm not worried about missing my Mishra's bobble trigger or whatever. You know, like there's a lot of things that can actually go into that. And I I think that a lot of undue stress and anxiety just kind of falls on people when they play in magic tournaments. And the more you play in big tournaments and high pressure situations, the easier it gets. And I I think it is just kind of as simple as that. And uh, a a lot of things like this, uh, you can learn about on the head of games podcast for sure yeah actually you you reminded me of a story i told on the head of games podcast i want to repeat it here real quick because i think it's super telling about this situation so i play tennis and i i told a story about a time where my cousin and i went to play a match of tennis and our regular court wasn't available and we went to this other court and the net was strung really low 
for whatever reason, the net was just like drooping in the center and not ideal, but we came here to play. So we ended up playing our game there. And by virtue of the net being low, we were able to play like 10 times more aggressive. We were just ripping shots at each other and playing (laughs) on on like a whole nother level because we had no fear of hitting the net and we had this new like untapped aggression we can get into. But what's funny is that when we left that court and returned to another court the next time we play, the exact same thing happened. And this was with a normal net, but we had just found that state of like having no fear and being willing to take those risks because the visual of the net being lower was like, okay, I can do this. And then that translated to playing on a higher net as well. So maybe there's a little bit of that going on where like, there's no real stakes for you. There's no risk. So you're willing to, t- to take these chances and find these like flashier lines and, and more challenging board states. Uh, you're willing to put yourself out kind of on a limb and, and take a risk and are being rewarded for it. And I, I think that could also be part of what we're seeing in these type of backseat magic situations as well. Yeah. And you talked about how when a, a newer player is playing against like a professional player, how the professional player has a, an advantage in a lot of different ways. I think the newer player trying to not make a mistake or look stupid is a, a big part of that. And it leads to like a lot of undue stress and anxiety on the situation. And, you know, maybe they are scared to call their opponents bluff or scared to make a bluff themselves, you know, like a, a lot of things like that end up happening where like, how, how would you play if you just had no fear? You know, I, I, I think that your tennis analogy is very apt for that sort of situation where it's just like, what if, what if the tournament didn't matter and maybe it's play testing or whatever, but it's like, you know, you, you have, a uh, 2-2 crappy creature and they just play like some 3-3 insane or rare or whatever. It's like, you know, the right play is probably to just attack and like, yeah, sometimes they will block, but they they shouldn't be able to, you know, like right. a lot of the time you're just going to get in two free points of damage. And can you actually pull that trigger when you get into a tournament setting or not? Because I think that's a, a very big deal of just being able to play fearless in those sorts of situations. For, for what it's worth, that tennis story I told, I believe, was in response to uh, a question from Liam, who talked about kind of his his own fear in tournaments. And I gave him the goal of playing a tournament with kind of no doubt, no fear. Uh, and he did this at this GP and had his best GP result ever. So Shocking. Something to it. I'm telling you. Yeah. Like, oh, what if my opponent has a counter spell? Like, I don't, I don't want to, like, just invest my entire turn and get this big spell countered, but realistically in, in a lot of those situations if that's the only way you can win yeah if, if you don't play it then you're just going to have this expensive card trapped in your hand that you're almost certainly not going to play for like the entirety of the game and the spells that you do play aren't even relevant on the outcome of the game and you know how many times i've like just kind of resigned myself to my spell getting countered just like played it and yep. then they're just like yeah that resolves and it's like i was convinced you had a counter spell right but they, they just don't always have it. And I think that is just fear talking a lot of the time. This came up all the time back when uh, Copycat was a deck, like the four color right. Sigilly decks. Yes. Splinter Twin see, 2. Yeah. I would see people like pass their turn three, not even having removal in hand and just being like, well, if I, I play my three drop here, I'm just dead. But the fact is, if you don't play your three drop and you let them continue to develop their board with basically the initiative and with having gone first, you're going to lose the game eventually anyway. And if they have the fellow air guardian on turn four, they have it. If you sat back and did nothing, you were going to lose anyway. Um, and it goes the other way too, taking the risk on actually going for the combo. 
So I, I've, I saw it work both ways in that mirror all the time. People played with a lot of fear, and that was the incorrect way to approach the matchup. Next question is from Wooberge. Yeah. I feel like this this is like kind of Wooberg, but with some extra letters. I don't know. Yeah, it's strange. Well, it is probably just Wooberg. I don't know. There's a weird E at the end. Uh, how do you stay focused and quickly speculate how things might play out over the next few turns? Every time I try, I feel like I'm a computer grinding away at a task with insufficient RAM. I can force through it, but doing it quickly is problematic, and I end up playing slowly. How do you handle complex decision trees in a reasonable amount of time? So this kind of goes back to the first question with having a narrative, having the story, and part of keeping track with what is going on in the game that is currently happening is also just sort of making plans for the future. It's like, all right, if I make this play versus this other play, how how does that necessarily impact things? And if they have this card, how does that punish me? Should I play around that? Like, not only do you have to be thinking about what is going on currently, but you need to be thinking about what could possibly happen in the future. I think there's also a benefit too to knowing where to cut your decision trees. And of it course. feels weird to be giving this advice because I am a slow player. My slowness, though, is not derived from an inability to quickly assess this the situation. It's derived from an ability to carry the situation way further than than is practical. You know, by trying to find the absolutely perfect play, regardless of you know any possible interaction my opponent may have, I get myself too deep. I go too far down the hole, and you know, I, I start thinking about. Where I'm 99% to make a certain play, I'm also doing the full decision tree on the 1% play to check it out. Even though I know that's almost certainly not going to be my option, I still feel like I have to do the work. And there's diminishing returns to doing that, both in terms of how you're using your RAM and actually how you're interacting with the game. You know, Using that much time is, is not beneficial. And in some cases, it's a violation of the rules, which is also problematic. So you have to, be, you have to know where to cut your decision trees off for sure. Right, but... Uh, the thing that you mentioned before where you're going to have downtime at some point, like your opponent's thinking on their turn, that is the perfect time to be thinking about what is going to happen in the future. And by trying to predict that or think about it, it's just like, okay, well, if they play Carnage Tyrant on this turn, then I'm going to try and dig for a Star of Extinction, and that's kind of what I have to be doing on my next turn. So then you you sort of are already prepared for that by the time your turn rolls around and you have these decisions to make. It's like you get to spend time thinking about these things in in other scenarios versus just like, okay, go, you untap, it's your turn, now you have to think about everything. Like That is the exact type of thing that we want to get away from. Right, no downtime in a game of Magic. So Magic is complex. I do think that you can... Uh, shave some stuff off, like you said, where it's like, okay, well, I could, in theory, make this play, but obviously it's heinous, so your brain will eventually shortcut things like that out, and you it just won't even register as a thing that you can possibly do. Yeah. You know, like, you, you won't have to go down that tree. Next question is from Liam. Uh, Liam that we've been talking about all cast, basically. Uh, my biggest struggle in Magic is hitting a wall once I figured something out. As soon as I feel like I've, quote unquote, done the work on something, I have trouble questioning it, often to my detriment. I stick to heuristics too closely, even if they stop working for me. And I find that when I try to correct for this, I overcorrect and end up questioning everything and not trusting any of my prior work. 
It's it's hard because I mean it's the same thing, right? Like you have to draw the line somewhere. You have to trust your conclusions. Uh, I I think a lot of this just comes down to confidence, not allowing yourself to question something once you've done the work is in some ways an indictment of your own confidence because you're afraid to discover something that you've asserted is now wrong. And that's, that's a tough way to play magic. You, you have to have a nice balance of trust and honesty and, you know, self worth and self belief that you're able to both reach your conclusions, carry them forward and know when to back away. And that really just takes being like, okay, I get this. You know, sometimes I will, get things wrong. That's fine. I'll correct it. But other times I get things right. And when I do, I'm going to lean on it very hard. So I think I'm certainly guilty of this, but I think a lot of people want games of magic to play out where they're kind of on the front foot the entire time, or if they're a control deck, they're on the back foot the entire time until they do their thing. And realistically, games are a lot of back and forth. It's like, You know, one person is being the aggressor until the other person either stops that or presents like their own sort of clock that is actually going to win the race. And then the other person who was the aggressor needs to slow down and things like that. Like basically the narrative constantly changes as far as what's going on and what's happening. And the same thing continues happening for the work that you've done. So you might do the work and figure out like, okay, this is the best sideboard plan I could possibly have against Golgari. And then the Golgari decks change what they're doing, either with their main deck or their sideboard or how people are playing against you or whatever. Maybe uh, your deck list gets published and now they know about your sideboard plan, right? So they're able to kind of dodge away from that. Everything always changes constantly. You constantly have to be updating and refreshing that information and... I don't think it is fair to just be like, well, I have learned this thing, therefore it's true, and it will always stay true, because that's just not the case. You can certainly make mental shortcuts for things that you believe to be true, but realistically, you should be questioning all of that stuff constantly. And it has has nothing to do with your self-worth or how good you are at figuring this stuff out or how good you are as a magic player or whatever. I, I even think that there are a lot of games where maybe you decide that you're supposed to be racing and you take it like one turn too far and then you're really far behind. You're just like, oh crap, you know, like I, I've made this mistake. Like that that's a sort of stuff just happens and you just kind of have to roll with it. There, there are going to be several tournaments where you end up uh, reading a metagame wrong or playing the wrong version of a deck or whatever because your information wasn't correct and hopefully you can learn from that stuff and do better the next time. That's That's really all you can ask for. And there will always be another tournament. Right. Yeah. Don't be afraid of mistakes. I think a lot of that boils down to. Adam Gadol asks, I find myself consistently deciding to play outlier decks. I rarely, if ever, find myself building a deck that is tier one because I like the idea of surprising people at a tournament with uh, what I'm bringing to the table. However, 95% of the time this backfires and I find myself wishing I had just played an already established deck. Is there a way to make it so I less often am trying to convince myself that I'll gotcha the tournament I am going to. And I, I think it's pretty similar to Liam's question where you just have to constantly be refreshing your information. And this also ties into like goals kind of, I mean, if, if you are actively trying to win, then I think this is a pretty bad mindset to kind of go down and have as sort of your baseline because 
very rarely is the like surprise deck actually going to give you more equity than just playing a good deck. Yeah, I, I mean, I think just surprise equity has very little value. It needs to have a better reason. Like there has to be an actual positioning reason behind, you know, taking something a bit off meta. Uh, I would also note that if you're using, if you're trying to get advantages from surprise equity against less skilled players, you're really stepping wrong because everything is basically a surprise to less skilled players, right? Like it's like they don't know the matchups well enough to really be caught off guard by anything. Um, so that's something to consider as well. I, I just think like looking for the surprise deck is not going to be successful in the long run. You can you can look for the correct call, but there still has to be a baseline of quality that you're leaning towards. Uh, and I think that's like for for me, that's how I define my approach. I think there is a hesitance to play the quote unquote best deck that's not born of a lack of respect for the best deck. It's for when I think there's an option that can target that best deck and find success that way. I've certainly played the best deck when I just say, okay, I don't have anything to target this. I don't think I have any advantage. So this is the way I'm going to go. And I think that's usually the right spot to be in. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it seems like Adam is placing an unfair amount of equity on just playing an off the meta deck when that is very unlikely to actually yield you dividends you know i mean look back at decks that you've played in tournaments and what your best successes have come with and i highly doubt that you have a bunch of first place finishes with decks that are not real you know right and you think about like what you're gaining like if you do successfully pull off the surprise so like okay your your opponent sideboards improperly well, a lot of your opponents are going to sideboard improperly anyway. Like you already have this equity that you're kind of building in. So just do it with the best deck instead. That's a, that's a way better way to look at it. Right. And even decks like Golgari, it's like, all right, you, you're a pile of mid-range creatures, some removal spells, some planeswalkers. Like that deck has a lot of different ways that you can sideboard where you can trim some of the more expensive stuff. You can board in more card advantage tools. You can board in a lot of different uh, disruption or removal and sort of alter your game plan, right? And that is going to catch people off guard, just playing a good deck and, you know, doing things that maybe they wouldn't otherwise expect. But also, like Brian noted, it's just like, they probably have no idea what your sideboard looks like, how you're going to sideboard, how that impacts the matchup, and putting a lot of value on that sort of thing is just not where the dividends lie, really. Agreed. Goblin Gui asks, I struggle with being able to accept that I have practiced enough and am ready for a particular tournament. I try to overload on data and practice, and sometimes I crash out. I also struggle with not seeing the results I feel I should be getting for the amount of time and effort I've put into the game. I think that last sentence is a big red flag for me. Yeah. I, I, I just, you're not entitled to anything. It doesn't matter how much time, how much effort you put in, those do not entitle you to any results. And I think you need to divest yourself of that notion as soon as possible, because that's a really, really harmful mind state. It builds up a lot of resentment, both like towards yourself and towards the game, but you're you're just not entitled to anything. Uh, I'm sorry. That's a hard lesson to learn, um, but you can put in all the time in the world and that doesn't make you great. You need to focus on meaningful improvement. And I really want to call back to our episode with Javier Dominguez. If you haven't listened to it, 
Stop what you're doing. Go listen to it right now. You can come back and listen to the rest of the episode later. Listen to him talk about his process for improvement and how he sought to get better. He set no goals on himself. He didn't say, I had to qualify for the pro tour. I had to do this. I had to do that. He was just like, I'm going to keep working. I'm going to keep getting better. Eventually, things will go my way. And he's the world champion now. So I I loved his mental approach. I loved his entire approach to the game. And this kind of this last line feels in stark contrast to that as far as being able to accept that you have practice enough i've got bad news for you there's no enough you can never say authoritatively i have practice enough i deserve a good result now it just doesn't work that way i i mean you have to find a form and level of practice that works for you understand it doesn't entitle you to anything and let improvement come naturally that's my response to this question if my takeaway uh, from Goblin's perspective, which was I struggle with not seeing the results I feel like I should be getting for the amount of time and effort I put into the game. It would lead me to question how I'm spending my time and my effort. Mm-hmm. So we have talked about how to play test and prepare for tournaments and your mindset and everything like that. And if you are putting in a lot of time and you're not seeing any sort of reasonable results, then something else has to be going on. There has to be some sort of issue. So what you need to do is figure out areas where you are lacking and better ways to devote your time. And like we've talked about a lot, it's like if if you sit down to play a matchup, like have a question that you want answered, right? Like that is the best way to actually spend your time preparing for a tournament is leading into a thing. It's just like, how is the, is it versus Golgari matchup? Is there a way that, I can actually get a slightly bigger edge. What happens if I add this card to my deck? What happens if they add this card to their deck? Like you want to be knowing all of those things, not just, well, I put in a bunch of time, therefore I deserve results. Like that's that's just not how it works. Next question is from Indoril. Writing out the modern metagame wheel, really understanding it, and then confidently settling on a deck list is a struggle for me. I consistently will be tweaking anxiously before an event. How does one go about getting a solid read of the metagame as opposed to just looking at MTG Goldfish meta percentage shares and what helps to be confident and lock in a 75 for a big event. And this kind of goes to the last question where just at, at some point it's pencils down. You could likely continue tuning and tweaking uh, for all eternity, right? And just at some point you just have to say enough is enough. I have prepared a lot. I am happy with my deck choice. Yes, you may pick up other forms of information or ideas or whatever, but realistically what ends up happening uh, kind of what, with what Liam was talking about earlier is that like, it'll just take it a step too far. You know, it's like, well, Golgari's the best deck. Drake's beats up on Golgari and then no one's going to play Golgari because they're going to want to play Boros to beat Drake's. And it's just like, realistically, like the, the Boros thing is just never going to happen. Like people are just going to play their Golgari decks. They're going to play their Drake decks. And that's just kind of whatever. And you could continue iterating and be on like level seven or whatever but realistically you need to dial it back a lot to like you know level one or level two right your best case scenario in that in that in that circumstance is that your level seven eventually warps you back around to like level one or level two and you somehow end up safe right but i i think it's a good idea especially when it comes to modern to give up on the idea that you're ever going to like nail a modern metagame. You could say some broad things. Like you can say, okay, I believe uh, these Phoenix decks are real. So I'm going to be prepared for them. 
that's fine. But thinking you're just going to nail a modern metagame, I mean, look at the top eights we saw over this past weekend. My own experience, the archetypes I played, I played against everything under the sun. There is no takeaways from my event. I played against Burn. I played against an Amulet Mirror. I played against Tron. I played against Spirits. I played against Humans. I could go on and on. I, I think I played, out of 11 rounds I, I played, I think I played 10 different archetypes. I think I played Spirits twice and that was it. But there's just, you can't make these reads in modern. You can look at broader trends and that's about it. And that's part of the reason why I am such a staunch advocate of having these linear game plans, these powerful decks that can win on like turn two and three, regardless of what's going on. I think that's such an important thing to do in the modern format because asking yourself to get it right, is just asking for too much. It's just not possible. Yeah, you can you can just pick a deck, you yep. know, and, and that's about it. Uh, obviously, fine tuning the details and everything is good, but... In a Grand Prix, uh, let's say you have two buys. There's 15 rounds of Swiss, so 13 rounds total. The biggest deck might be slightly over 10% of the metagame. That means that, you'll, yeah, you you will probably have the same experience that Brian did in Portland where you might play against one deck twice and a lot of other decks a single time. And obviously that can shake out in weird ways. I know that there was like GP DC in 2010 or whatever. Jund was 25 or 30% of the metagame and I played against it zero times, right? Weird things happen. But for the most part, just saying like, oh, you know, this is exactly the modern metagame and my deck crushes it is not really accurate because you are going to play things that are outside of your expected metagame always. So uh, if there is a deck like Spirits that you think you are going to play against the most, play a deck that is good against that deck just inherently, but don't necessarily hard target anything. Yeah, smart advice. Next two questions we are going to group together. The first one is from Evan K, uh, who says, My greatest struggle in Magic is thinking that I know everything about a deck too quickly. Every time I pick up a deck, I put a lot of focus on playing it well in the first league. And then by leagues three or four, I'm on autopilot and doing significantly worse with it, uh, likely because at that point, I think I mastered it and don't have to think. And Big Z says, my biggest struggle is turning on autopilot where I play based on my instinct and experience rather than just focusing on the details of the match at hand. How do you avoid this trap? I mean, I think the best way to do is just understanding that there is no level of mastery. Like, Things always change. There's no default game of magic. There's no point where you have successfully broken down a matchup and internalized it and know it to its core. It's just not ever going to happen. It's not a realistic goal. And that's fine. That's why you play magic. That's why you love magic is because there is no level of mastery. You know, it's it's not like chess where somebody opens in a certain fashion and then there's a you know, a a list of responses to that opening. I know almost nothing about chess. Please don't make fun of me, chess people. But it's very different. Magic is constantly adaptable. And putting on autopilot, you have to recognize as a self-destructive move. It is not in your best interest. It's, It's not saving your RAM. It's not getting you access to, you know, other parts of your brain that you're using for other functions. It's only costing you because there are no games that can be played on autopilot. There's there's too much variation on a game-to-game basis, and there's always some minor detail to focus in on. And I mean, if you're getting, if you're feeling like the actual gameplay isn't giving you the dearth of information you're looking for and the things to adapt to, focus on other cues. Focus, Start focusing on your opponent's actions and what they're doing with their eyes, how they're looking at their graveyard, things like that, which are very small things, 
but there are still points of equity to be gained. And if you're just going on autopilot, you're not gaining anything. You're completely throwing away your chances at picking those things up. So lean a little harder into them. Even if I don't think they're the most impactful thing you could be doing, at least at that point, you're actively engaging with the game and avoiding this autopilot syndrome. I'm kind of curious about whether or not both of these players care about winning the match that's in front of them. Because if someone is driven to do something or accomplish something or play well or whatever, I think it is very difficult to actually shift into autopilot if you have those things at the forefront of your mind. We're like, I want to play the best game of magic I possibly can. And you're like amped up and alert and paying attention and everything. You just can't go on autopilot in those situations. It just won't happen, right? And I can relate to this a lot because I'm just at this point where it's like, I'm, I'm not super fired up to like do well in tournaments. Like I want to learn things and uh, interact with people and make content and stuff. And like the tournaments take a backseat to that. So it's really difficult for me to get fired up about it. But what is everyone else's excuse? Yeah, I mean, a lot of it certainly comes down to goals. And I, f- I feel a lot of what you're describing in my own approach to tournaments. You have to be careful of using that as a cop out. Like it's a very convenient way to kind of let yourself off the hook for poor performance, which I don't think either of us have an interest in doing. Like I, I generally no. still want to be a top performer. It's just that it, it is harder to get in that level. Like I, I know exactly the feeling that you're describing and it's like, whatever it takes within the rules, I will find a way to win this game of magic come hell or high water. And there's nothing you can do to stop me. And I've felt that intensely before. And then there's other times where it's like, it's not quite autopilot. And and sometimes it is. I've certainly gone to autopilot myself, but there's a level kind of between complete autopilot and that fierce determination that I think I often default to now where it's like, I'm going to play well, I'm going to try my best, but this outcome ultimately isn't very determinative of, you know, my well-being or happiness right now. Right. And I, I think it is important to, recognize what order those come in, right? If it's like, I say I don't care about the tournament and then I go into the tournament and I play on autopilot, play like garbage, that's one thing. But if I find myself playing on autopilot and then it's like, oh, why is that? And I think it is, well, clearly I just don't care that much about winning the match that's in front of me. Why is that? And then like, that's kind of how I got to that conclusion where I don't have that that same sort of fire I did at various points to to do well in in these tournaments because it's not like the most important thing in the world to me. So I understand why I do that. I wish I would not do it. I wish I would, you know, care a little bit more. But the things that I care about are making the correct decisions for my decks and then sharing that information with other people so that they can also do well. And then it's like, okay, I guess I'll register for this tournament because I'm here, you know. Does this change for your Pro Tours or is this would you say you've been experiencing that at Pro Tours as well? Uh, so I don't really know what happened at Amonkhet. I know that Rivals for sure was a very weird mix of emotions where I was like very, very depressed, but also very angry about the fact that one of my best friends was in a coma and I just like found out the the night before the tournament started. Right. So I think I, I did have kind of like that fire because I was just pissed off. I was just mad like the entire weekend. Hmm. So, I mean, is that something you, obviously not in those circumstances, but is that something you've thought about ways to potentially tap into again? Like leveraging anger for kind of focus and devotion? 
I try not to be angry and right. I don't think that I was a particularly pleasant opponent a lot of the time that right. weekend, certainly in like the early rounds. And I was not, you know, people were coming up to me, like asking me what was wrong. And it's just like, it's not my place to say. So I just didn't want to talk about it. Right. right. And I wanted more than anything to actually just drop from the tournament and leave and like, just go think about stuff and sulk and whatever. Right. But it's like, Corey was one of the fiercest competitors I've ever known in my entire life. Like he could just not turn it off. Mm-hmm. And that was just like a huge part of him. And then I just decided that, you know, like I am going to stay in and like kind of for him. Right. So I don't know. I, I think, I think that helped me a lot and it obviously I did well in the tournaments and I think, I think I played poorly in the beginning. And then after like thinking about things and processing them, like I started to play better and everything. And my result was obviously very good, but I was not happy with like what kind of person I was during that tournament. Gotcha. And uh, I mean, that's kind of in a lot of ways, way more important than anything else, right? Like you have to live with yourself and being happy with who you are is worth a lot more than any accomplishment. I think there may have been a point in your life where like, you felt you needed to be a pro tour champion to be happy with who you are. And maybe that doesn't quite ring true anymore. It's also easier once you've done it, right? It's, it's easier to kind of check that off as one of the things driving you. But, you know, people evolve and people change. And I, I think it's always good to keep track of what's important to you at any given moment. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I do a pretty good job of that. Like, I do, you know, I recognize the the autopilot thing slash not necessarily playing my best actually in tournaments and what are the potential causes for that and everything and how I could maybe change that. But I don't think that that would necessarily affect my happiness to the the highest degree versus just not worrying about it. Right. No, I respect that. But yeah, I mean, it, it could just be a, a total cop out too, where it's like, well, now if I do bad, like that's my excuse or whatever. No, I know. And you know, that's one of the things about mental growth is that a lot of like peace. And as I get older, I feel like I'm a lot more even keeled and like better at accepting things. And part of it, there's always this part of me that's like, are you just giving up? Like, where's your fire? Are you just being a coward and not willing to like fight for the things you really care about? And it's a constant inner monologue I have with myself. But I think the truth is the answer just doesn't matter all that much. It's more about the end goal. And if the end goal is happiness, I do know that this set of behaviors inspires a lot more happiness in me. And that's basically where I've made peace and given up on that back and forth that I found myself myself fighting for a lot of years. Yeah, I feel the same way. I mean, we we see this a lot even kind of wrapped up in these questions is that like, uh, I, I don't think I'm getting the results that I should be getting or whatever. Uh, and realistically, if those pers- if these people got those results, I don't think it would make them happy. So then it's very difficult for me to justify actually trying to force myself to have that killer instinct to, you know, be sort of cutthroat in these tournaments and everything. Because I know that at the end of the day, it's not really going to change anything. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Like I said, I, I really enjoy learning. I like interacting with the community. I like teaching and helping people and... Uh, I will put in the time and effort to learn those things and learn how to expose other people to those thoughts and ideas, even if it doesn't necessarily translate to success of my own. And I'm fine with that. Right. And I know I appreciate appreciated it. And I know a lot of our listeners appreciate it as well. All right. Last question from C Sparks. 
My biggest struggle is knowing when I lose because I did something wrong as opposed to because of variance. Not knowing whether there's a lesson in a loss or what it is is the most frustrating feeling to magic in magic to me. There's always something you could have done differently. Maybe it would not have impacted the game. It is entirely possible that you just maul a bunch of zero landers into oblivion and die twice. That's very, very minuscule and I think just reductive to the entire magic experience because I don't know, maybe maybe you played Tron or some deck that has to aggressively mulligan to do well and you just didn't end up on the right side of things and maybe that was a poor choice because you know you don't want to play decks where you mulligan a bunch or whatever. I don't know. Like there's there's so much that goes into preparation for learning the decks in a format, picking your deck, and having like the actual specifics of your deck all handled and laid out. And then there's mulliganing and sideboarding. There's so much that goes on into magic that I find it very, very difficult to believe that at the end of a game, you're just like lost because of variance. Nothing I could have done. Yeah, I the whole variance write-off thing, it's like <laughs> step one is not understanding variance. Step two is blaming variance for everything. And I've seen so many people move through this kind of equation. One of the things about variance write-offs is that you'll hear people say something like, oh, I played in such a fashion that I was like 70%. And if if he has it in that 30% of the time, I just lose. He had it. Excuse me. They had it. So I lost. And I, I think that you're missing so much in that explanation like, how did you get to 70%? Do you need to check your calculations? Are you positive you had a 70% chance of winning from that point? Or are your assumptions flawed? Did you miss something in earlier turns that should have led you to reduce your chances of your line being a 70% line? Is the 30% line as bad as you thought it was? Could you have played in a different fashion that actually gave you a better percentage chance to win the game? And even if all those things check out and you reach a point of confidence where you're like, nope, this is what I was supposed to do. First of all, you're probably wrong. There's always some other approach you could have taken in the vast majority of games. But second of all, you get to go back and start looking through other things you mentioned. You look at deck selection. You look at deck construction. You look at sideboard selection. Is there something else I could have done? You know, I had a spot in GP Portland. I was playing against Tron as Amulet. In both my games, I kept hands, which were a very, very large percent favorite to win on turn two. Um, one was like any bounce land as well as a ancient stirrings that I got to play looking for the bounce land and I missed. And the other was, I think it was any packed, any Titan for a turn two. And then on turn three, I got to Teleria West for whichever I was missing. Uh, and I missed all those as well. But in that instance, that's what I'm thinking of. Okay. I, I just missed my outs. I, I still think I played well. And I think I did. I, I think I should have kept the hands I kept. And, I, you know, I did get unlucky. But then I go back to deck construction and I think about the fact, like, well, could I have played an additional bounce land in my deck? It was something I thought about. And ultimately, I decided not to. Uh, could I have played a additional adventurous impulse as opposed to my second copy of Trinket Mage or my second copy of Ranger? All of these things started running through my head as adaptations I could have made to my build that would have raised my percentages even more and given me more outs to hit. And, and wondering if that was something I should have considered. Did I make a mistake there? I, I don't know. But there's definitely something to learn. And an adaptation to be made. It's not like there's nothing to take away from that situation. And 
even though I lost, I still wonder if I could have approached the situation better. Could I have given myself more outs before I even sat down to play the game? It's always worth considering. Right. Did I talk to you about uh, my match against Colorless Eldrazi with the Hollow One deck in Baltimore? Yes. Yes, you did. So the the gist is that uh, they play Relic, Thought Seer, Thought Seer, or no, Relic, Thought Seer, Smasher, Smasher. And I played uh, Flameblade Adept. Then on turn two, I had a bunch of choices, which involved me playing Flameblade Adept, Fetch Land, Sack to get Stomping Ground tapped. And then on my turn, I play Burning Inquiry. And then on the next turn, I cast Manamorphose. And there were like a lot of decisions to be made. And maybe it starts with, I chose to do the wrong thing on turn two. The end of the game is I cast Manamorphose into Faithless Looting, cast Faithless Looting, could discard Ancient Grudge to be able to play a third spell to bring back Arclight Phoenix to kill them, but I named Red Red with Manamorphose, which in theory gives me more outs where I have like a Lightning Bolt I left in, more Faithless Lootings, etc. Like I have more red cards than reasons to use the green because like I didn't have, uh, I Manamorphosed into the looting, right? Mm-hmm. So it's like, I, I could look at it like, oh, I also had a, a fetch land and I could have fetched another stomping ground, but I'd already, I caught one stomping ground from the deck list and I'd fetched a stomping ground on turn two. So it's like, maybe I should have played a second stomping ground. Maybe I should have not fetched the stomping ground on turn two. Uh, maybe I should have done something differently on turn two. Like there are so many different decisions where at the end of the game, it comes down to like, I have a fetch land and no green source in my deck. And like, that sucks. Right. It's like, oh man, any other land. And like, I would have killed my opponent, which is basically true. But yeah, it's just it's so reductive to then not think about the 10 things that happened on the previous three turns, right? Yeah. yeah. Like I, I got into a spot where I was a 70% favorite and then they drew the card that killed me. But it's like, what happened in the last three games that you played? Like there's a lot of stuff that happened, right? And there's no way in hell that you played everything perfectly up until that point and that was the defining moment of the match. It's just not true. Right. And I mean, in, in your case, you're talking about a three turn game where your opponent drew the absolute nuts. And it's so easy to just be like, nothing I could have done. It just didn't work out. I missed on that turn, but you found in that three turn game, what three possible mistakes that you could have things you could have done differently. Yo, it's way more than that. Uh, Also my, my burning inquiry discarded my three playable spells left me with like no playable spells. So yeah, I think it is very easy to just look at it. Be like my opponent had the nuts inquiry uh, got me in that game. And then I got unlucky at the end with like the, the metamorphose or whatever. And it's like, no, there were just a million decisions I could have made that could have swung the game differently. And I could have beat my opponent who had the nuts. Right. Boom. The variance losses are super rare. That's all. That's all I'm going to say. They're, they're very rare. And even when they happen, there's still lessons to be learned. Absolutely. Uh, even if it is just, oh, like in the course of these games playing out, I learned this thing and that could have helped me. Next you know, build my deck differently to have uh, a slightly better percentage chance, or I should have sideboarded a little bit differently or whatever. Yep. You know, there's so much going on that just reducing it down to variance, blah, 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 is so detrimental to you and your overall success. Yeah, I totally agree. So this has been awesome. I think that uh, something needs to happen in regards to this going forward. Like it is very clear that the big picture stuff is, far more important to a lot of people than we are giving it coverage of. So I want to do more stuff like this 
just in general, uh, and I'm, I'm leaving this here for accountability. This is not necessarily like, oh, we have plans to do this or whatever, but uh, just thinking about it. And the big takeaway, I think, from this episode is that uh, your preparation and your in-game stuff all has a narrative. You should always follow that narrative, not just look at isolated portions of the story. You know, it's like flipping to page 500 of a book and reading that page, nothing else, and being like, you know, is this book good? Like, you have no idea. Right. Right. It's there's so much else going on and you should be very cognizant of the entire story and what's going on and constantly be updating and refreshing that information. Magic at the highest level just never stops. That's that's the truth of it is that there is literally 24 hours a day, something you can be learning, adapting to, you know, changing about your perceptions of the metagame and that's intimidating and can be frustrating when you don't have as much time to devote to magic as you would like. I've I've been there. I know. I am very sympathetic. But all that means is you have to maximize what you're doing with the rest of your time, focus on useful behaviors, uh, useful questions to be asking. And I, I think that's the big takeaway here. And I'm excited to come back and do part two of this because there are some still great questions that we didn't get to today. Uh, and, and I'm looking forward to touching on them as well. Yeah, same. And for for everyone that contributed a question, thank you so much. They were all great and they give us a lot of awesome stuff to talk about. Yeah. And I, I agree with you. I love doing episodes like this. It's been hard because I think Standard has been so good that it's occupied so much space that we haven't done stuff like this in a while. And even modern, I mean, I think modern has been great as well. You know, I understand the complaints against the format. They're the same complaints that have always existed. So I'm just kind of like, I'm over them at this point. Like, this is what modern is. If you don't like it, that's cool. Uh, But a lot of people do. And I'm finding it interesting right now. So I'm, you know, signing up for the silly non-games and the linear stuff. It's it's just part of the format. And I like it. And I want to talk about it all the time. But doing so at the expense of this longer term stuff might be a little bit of an oversight on our part. So I'm, I'm looking forward to doing more stuff like this in the future, especially in this time as we lead into the next set. This is a nice spot. So if anyone has any ideas, please feel free to let us let us know. The secret to modern is just finding a deck you like. It really could be. <laughs> All my best experiences <laughs> are just like, yep, love this deck, totally into it. All right, man, sign us out, and we'll be back with part two in four or five days, give or take, and as our bonus episode, and then back to our regular schedule. That's game halfway. Good luck.